Hey, this is Corey Kosky. Wanted to give you a little heads up before we get into this podcast. The audio quality isn't the best. 95% of it is good. 5% of it, there's some scratching and there's some stuff that's going on. I thought about scrapping it, but with the content and what LaTroy talked about and the stories that LaTroy told, I'm just plowing through on this one. So I hope you guys stay with me on this one. And I hope I hope by me telling you this isn't going to deter you from listening to this. So here we go. And how we grew up, you had to fight. Because if you didn't, you're going to definitely continue to get picked on. And, you know, either you be... <laughs> either you do some punching or you taking the punching in. You know, I found out very early on I didn't want to want to be taking the punches, so I was giving the punches. From Lakely, it's how I got here. The stories behind the youth, high school, college, and professional sports journey, where it leads, and what we learn along the way. I'm Corey Koski, and on today's show, we have a former teammate of mine that played 21 years in the big leagues on 10 different teams. LaTroy Hawkins had a 21-year Major League Baseball career. He played for 10 teams. All right, you ready for this? Minnesota Twins, Chicago Cubs, San Francisco Giants, Baltimore Orioles, Colorado Rockies, New York Yankees, Houston Astros, Milwaukee Brewers, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, New York Mets, and the Toronto Blue Jays. Through his career, he had his ups and downs but he was able to use his upbringing in Gary Indiana to help him get through that stuff. How does a guy who played one year of freshman baseball at high school and then not play again until a senior year, make it to the major leagues, and have a 21-year major league career? This is his story. Growing up in Gary, Indiana, what was that like? Life in Gary, Indiana. Um, wow. To say my mom was a, when I was very young, my mom was a beautician. And then she ended up going to school, doing, learning to do some nursing stuff, a CN, I think that's what it was. Um, my grandmother, her mom was a, she drove the local bus for in and out of the steel, Gary Steel Mills. Um, my grandfather worked in the steel mills and he and my grandmother wasn't married, so he was married to another lady who they've been married longer than I've been living. My, I call her my grandmother, Celestine. And, you know, I grew up a, a, a kid that played a lot of sports. Um, I, was, I had a lot of family around me, uncles, aunties, cousins. And even though the city that we lived in, you know, during my youth years was very, it was pretty much crumbling around me. I had a, I had a support system that, that really didn't allow me to get caught up in everything else that was going around in my city. We were, we were poor. You know, my mom had three boys and she had a job, but not a job and, you know, that paid enough to take care of three, three boys. Uh, I'm, uh, I was, I'm 46, my middle brother is 44, and my youngest brother is 36. So there's a 10-year uh, age difference between me and my baby brother. 
So naturally, my brother that's 44, him and I are a lot closer than my my baby brother because, you know, when he was a young fellow, I was already out of the house. But, you know, we try to stay occupied, you know, family functions. My grandmother loved to play cards. She loved to have people at our house. She loved to cook. Um, her friends or her friends from, you know, that, that she met when she was a, a young lady, a, a young kid, and we just had a nice little tight group of people that that tried to do, you know, back then it was more of a, a raise your, it was more of a community to help raise your kid, not just you raise your kid, the community raise your kid. And I was, I was part of a community that helped raise a lot of kids. So you, you talk about the city crumbling around you. What do you mean by that? Well, Gary was, as a, had uh, steel mills, it's a steel mill city. And the steel mills were closing and they all closed except for U.S. Steel. And once the steel mill started to close, the city became completely different. It went from a thriving working community to a non-thriving, non-working community. And when people who don't have jobs crime and everything else starts to uh, deteriorate the city. And so your community kind of kept you in trouble. You had a lot of buddies who were getting in trouble. Yeah, I had, you know, I have buddies and shoot. I, my, my buddies stayed in trouble. I mean, I wasn't the, I wasn't the sweet, nice, cool Detroit that I am now. You know, I got into some trouble with fighting and things like that. Never, never went to jail. Um, but you know, I did fight and I look at it this way where we grew up and how we grew up, you had to fight because if you didn't, you're going to definitely continue to get picked on. And, you know, either you be, (laughs) either you do some punching or you taking the punching. And, you know, I found out very early on, I didn't want to want to be taking the punches. So I was giving the punches. You're, you're, going, you're going up in that community. The, the, the community around you is kind of falling apart. How involved, like, how did you get involved into sports? You know, my mom was, is still today one of the biggest sports fans that, that I know. And that's because, and I give her that title because, you know, African-American lady, she watches baseball, basketball, football, soccer, hockey, um, tennis, golf. You know, I was watching all those things as a little kid because my mom just loves sports. And she still, to this day, she watches all sports. She knows pretty much everything. She has, she knows a little bit about every sport. And I know I got that from her. And, you know, growing up with a brother that's close in age with you, that helps too because we played all the sports together and we enjoyed the sports. I enjoyed playing baseball as a young age, basketball, you know, played a little football. And it helped when your mom has the same, you know, your mom has my, your mom gets joy from talking about sports and actually playing sports. And so we did that because we knew our mom liked it. And, you know, when I, when I got a little older, 12, 11, 12 years old, my mom played little league, me and my brother, my mom used to play catch with us. So when I hear, you know, stories today, today about kids, parents, well, their mom helped playing catch with them, helping them with their sport. My mom actually did get out in the backyard and play catch with us. 
what was it like playing catch with your mom? Was she focused on the technique or she was just out there spending time with you? Uh, a little bit of both. She was out there spending time. That was her way of spending time with us. But she knew how to catch and throw. I mean, and she never played softball. She did it because that's what she had seen on TV, and she taught herself to do it. And she figured since having all boys, you know, a great way to spend time with them if you like how to do, you know, what your kids like to do. You should go out there and learn just a little bit so you can participate to a certain certain point with your kids. So my mom learned how to catch and throw. And that was pretty cool. You know, I, you know, over the years, I kind of like lose sight of how important that was for me. But, it, you know, thinking about it now, talking about it, I was like, that was pretty cool because every kid doesn't get that experience. They get the experience with their dad. Well, our dad wasn't around. So I had the same experience with my mom, coming up, you know, going out in the, you know, in the street and playing, you know, uh, pickle, a man in the middle with my mom. Oh, you played all that with your mom? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We call it man in the middle. You guys call it pickle. But we call it man in the middle or granddad. We did that. Well, up in Canada, we didn't We didn't play. We just played that with snowballs. And you and the man in the middle, you're going to get hammered. <laughs> what, what do you have? Um, so you're playing high school baseball. You're playing high school basketball. What else are you doing in high school? So baseball, basketball, and run track. When did the scouts start coming around? You know, when I was a freshman in high school, I played baseball in high school my freshman and my senior year. So my freshman year, I played high school baseball. In the summer, I played on our Legion ball team because where I'm from, Legion ball was really big. It was one of the bigger – it was bigger than – we didn't have travel ball or AU or anything like that. But travel ball was like, and our post 99 was our post. And it was almost like town ball. We played all the other posts around in our area, and it was a lot. And we, and we started doing that. And I still played Little League, which was Senior League at the time. But I played over in a town just next to Gary called Portage, Indiana. So I played on a team with, you know, and my high school was 100% black. But I played... Um, senior league on a town ball team in Portage, Indiana, which had, you know, whites and blacks on the team. And that was like my, you know, that was, that was like the opening eye for me that, you know what, the type of baseball I was playing in, in Gary, what the type of baseball that, that I, um, I, that I was, I was accustomed to. What do you mean by that? Just because the talent was so much better in Portage than it was in the, in Gary where I grew up. The talent was so much better playing with kids from, you know, other places, other backgrounds. The talent was much, much better than the talent I grew up playing against and Gary. So I enjoyed playing, you know, with my friends in the St. League in Portage, Indiana. And, you know, we traveled all through Indiana playing different games. I didn't have that experience in Gary. And at the when I played with my post team, all we did was play other posts in like a 20-mile radius, if that. But on my senior league team, we traveled all over, you know, the state of Indiana to play baseball. What was it like going from 100% black high school and all of a sudden you're playing with uh, some white guy? Like, how was that, as you kind of remember? You know, I, I rem it was cool for me and it was cool for them because, you know what, I look at it, you know, we might have been different by skin color, but we were actually the same people. We loved one thing. We had one thing in common. 
and we love baseball. And our coach, Coach Cannon, was, you know, one of the best coaches in the area. And we had a chance to play for him. So we didn't look at we didn't look at it that way. I look at it that way now because I, I think about the it was a, a time an experience that I'm glad I had a chance to experience at such a young age. But um going to all black high school was it was different, man. That that was completely different. I mean, that's all I knew at the time, but like now I talk to when I talk to people and tell them that my daughter goes to school in California and she's president of the Black Student Union. I went to speak to them two weeks ago. And when I told them my high school was 100% black and they were like, and we had like 4,000 students, they were all blown away. It was like I said something and got a standing ovation and I had to wait for the room to, you know, bam before I finished speaking. And that's how it was. We couldn't imagine going to a school like that. And I said, you wouldn't want to go to a school like that. <laughs> so, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. It got me, and I and I look at that part of my life growing up. That really got me, you know, really helped me get prepared to what to do, what I was going to do in the future. And I had no clue what I was going to do that experience in my life, getting ready, getting myself ready for for professional baseball. All right, so you get drafted in '91 uh, by the Twins in the seventh round. What was that like going into your first? minor league spring training, your first minor league experience, your first professional experience? Well, I was drafted and I was sitting in my government econ class in high school and taking my final and my teacher, Miss Boom, somebody walks into class, hands her a note, she reads a note, she beelines to me, puts, you know, I'm taking my test, she, she puts the note at the top of my desk and just walks away. And I get the note, Detroit, you've been drafted in the seventh round by the Minnesota Twins. Please call scout Dan Durst after school. Danny Durst. Yep. And I'm like, hmm, that's kind of cool. I'll finish my test and then I go home. And I get home and dude, when I tell you it wasn't, it wasn't like it was this big deal or something. It was not a deal. It was not like a big deal. Didn't expect it all. So the scout comes over, Dan Durs, negotiating. You know, he leaves, he comes back, end up signing, play professional baseball. Well, I graduated June the 6th. I left the next morning on June the 7th to fly to Fort Myers. And granted, I get to Fort Myers, and I didn't play baseball in high school all four years. I played my freshman year. I played my senior year. My junior year, my sophomore year, I didn't play. My junior, my, no, my sophomore year, I played. I left on spring break to take my uncle to college with my grandparents, and my coach was mad. So when I got back, he said I had to do all this and this and that to get back on the team, and I told him, no, I'm not doing all that. Whatever. So I didn't play baseball my, my sophomore year. My junior year, he was still the coach. Instead of going out, I was like, I'm not going to go out. I just play in the summer, play the senior league, play in the, um, in the um, post the uh, Legion Ball League. That's all I do. I don't need to play high school baseball. My sin, and in the summertime, the teams would have camps all over, like East Chicago, Indiana, and in in Chicago, and these pro camps where the Phillies, the Pirates, 
the Cubs, the White Sox, how these camps and all these guys will go and you run the 40, you hit, you throw and do all that. So whenever they had one in our area, my grandfather would take me to, to these camps. And most of them were already always over in the Chicago area. So I would go to camp too. Then my senior year, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and play high school baseball because uh, it'd be my last opportunity to do this. And I ended up playing my senior year. Same so coach? Could, same coach. Same coach. By the end, Corey, he needed me way more than I needed him. <laughs> Even more. But I didn't like I, I didn't like that he didn't want me to go on vacation with my family. Mm-hmm. Important that I was with my grandparents when we drove my uncle to Texas to go to college to go play baseball. He didn't think it was important. And I and at the time, my grandfather knew how important it was. I did not like I'm going anyway. I wasn't looking at it like my grandfather looked at it like I look at it now. I was like, you know, it's a great opportunity. You know, here's his uncle going to college to play baseball, and he wants to go and drop him off at college. You know, he wants to go see him. I wanted to go see him. That's what I wanted. I wanted to go see him with my grandparents. And they were having games because it was in March. And he didn't think it was that big of a deal. Now I know why my grandfather, you know, allowed me to go because, you know, you know, he knew I wanted to go to college, continue to, you know, playing baseball. But the mere fact that I had somebody there already doing it and going to try to experience it, he knew that would definitely influence me, you know, to keep, you know, stay on that straight and narrow. And, you know, that's something that I can attain. But my high school coach didn't see it there. I played my senior year. Like I said, I got drafted by the Twins. I went to Fort Myers. I get off the plane, and I'm watching all these guys in the Minnesota Twins organization throw, you know, 88 to 95 miles an hour. You know, these guys from the Dominican Republic, people from all over the world, you know, they playing first base, second base, shortstop, center field, catching the ball like I've never seen before. I had never played against people. I thought these guys, I'm like, I told myself, if I don't know if I can play with these guys, these guys look like like the guys I see on television. I'm like, I don't know if I'm gonna make it. This is gonna be tough. I'm like, okay. So after the first couple of weeks, you know, I started to figure, you know, started to figure figure this whole thing out, and I thought to myself, I just might be all right. But a lot of guys from California and Texas and Florida had played a lot more baseball, but. I look at this opportunity. I got just an opportunity for me to learn a lot more. And I had to learn it fast. Well, I thought I had to learn it fast. And, you know, I put my head down and started working. The first time I ever had a pitching coach. So, you know, at that point, it was Eric Rasmussen. Everything my pitching coach told me, I, I took it as it was the gospel because I hadn't had anybody ever tell me how to pitch before. I just got on the mound and did what I saw you know, whatever they were doing in the Cubs game or the White Sox game when I was, you know, getting out of high school, I mean, getting out of uh, school for the day. And before I went to bed watching the White Sox game, I tried to emulate everything I saw the pitchers doing on television. Never had a pitching coach. So that was that was the key. That was a that was a mental mental part of the game for me when I first got there. Getting over the the point of asking myself, do I belong? And I did. And I, I belonged. I felt like I belonged. It took me about two, three weeks to understand it, to believe in myself that I belonged. But um, I got there, and like I said, I put my head down and, and just started, you know, learning, learning as much as I could, as fast as I could, and never stopped learning from that point on.
When we come back, Latroy's going to talk about his big league debut. You're not going to want to miss this. It's not what you think. Stay with us. I'm Corey Koski, and you're listening to How I Got Here from Lake Lake. Hey, I want to use this time to tell you about the Hawkins Family Charity. Find one reason to smile. They have a mission of reinventing smiles of women and children affected by domestic violence and sex trafficking. Find one reason to smile helps women fight back. They partner with dentistry professionals to provide implants, dentures, and other dental services to women who have been abused or forced to use drugs as victims of sex trafficking. Kudos to the Hawkins family to trying to do something uh, to help these women uh, and victims and survivors of sex trafficking and domestic violence. Go to their website at findonereasontosmile.org. That's findonereasontosmile.org. And on the bottom of the page, uh, they have a little donate button. I highly recommend to donate to this cause. Uh, they're doing some great work over there. Welcome back. I'm Corey Koski, and you're listening to How I Got Here from Linkley. Well, we went through the beginning of Latroy's life, uh, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and the fact that he played freshman and senior baseball uh, blows him away, and he got drafted by the Twins, and he moves on. Now he becomes uh, has his first encounter in professional sports. Now we go into his big league career. He raced through the minor league system, and in four years he came and he got his first big league start. Oh, my big league debut. I ended up making a team only because, uh, in spring training in 95. I only made the team because Major League Baseball and the Player Association, we were on strike. We were on strike at the time. And we didn't have, a, when they settled the strike, we didn't have a long spring training. I think they gave us two weeks for the spring, spring, spring training. And they let us, they let teams expand their roster for another two weeks. So I ended up making a team, myself and Brad Rackey, because of roster, the roster expansion. And um, I think I, our first series was in Boston. And in our second series, I was pitching when we got home against Baltimore. Um, I can tell you this. It didn't go well, but I was not nervous at all pitching in the big leagues my first go around. I was not nervous at all. And I wonder if that's the reason why I didn't do well, because, you know, you needed some kind of nervousness. And I didn't have that. When I got back down to AAA and then came back up in September, I felt like I was a nervous wreck <laughs> because I figured out real, I figured real fast how good those guys really were. And I had that conversation with myself, am I good? And it took me a couple years to figure out that you know, I might have a chance at surviving in this doggy dog world of being a professional athlete at the big league level. So why do you think why do you think you weren't nervous? I don't know. I think I was too young and stupid, and I had so much so much success in the minor leagues pitching that I thought I, that was just going to carry over to the big leagues, and that, as you know, definitely wasn't the case. So I had some 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 false security because of the numbers I put up in the minor leagues. In 1993, I was 15-5 and five with a 2 ERA. In 1994, I was 18-3, and three, and I went from A-ball to double-A to triple-A. And I was, I was on a high. I was throwing the ball very well for two and a half years consistently. And I knew the guys were good in the big leagues, but I thought I was good. So you get your teeth kicked in. Uh, first, so how do you deal with that, that – because now you're doing it at a 
higher stage at, at, on the big stage. How do you deal with that adversity? I never, I never ran from from. Um, it didn't make me a difference if I got my my teeth kicked in because I always said this about baseball. There's nothing on in baseball that can happen to me that I can't deal with because I had dealt with so much. You know, growing up in the city that I grew up in, I was kind of prepared for for you know whatever baseball had to offer. It wasn't going to kill me, you know, any of that stuff. So if it wasn't going to kill me, I can deal with it, internalize it, compartmentalize it, learn from my mistakes and try to get better, you know, the next, in five days. So I think my upbringing, I always say the way I was brought up in the city that I was brought up in, the toughness, I got that from my city and I brought that to baseball. So I didn't let, you know, get my teeth knocked in. As long as I was seeing some kind of progress in certain areas, uh, I was I always had, you know, kept the faith in, in that eventually one day it was going to get better. And I had a manager in Tom Kelly that believed in Latroy Hawkins when Latroy didn't believe in himself so much. And just little interactions with TK over the years, you know, those years I was starting and struggling. And he would call me in his office and was like, hey, young man, you keep throwing that ball over the plate. I don't care if they hit it. You keep throwing over the plate and you keep working your butt off. He said, but the first time I see you not working, I'm going to send you out of here. You keep that in mind. So I had Tom Kelly, one of well, the best manager I ever had. I had him in my corner. And TK ran everything around Minnesota for the Minnesota Twins those days. And, and to have a guy like him in your corner, even though you're consistently going out there getting your face kicked in, you know, he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And I'm glad to this day when I see him, I always tell him thank you for, you know, sticking with me and, and get me get me over that that part of my my baseball career, and help me get into that second level. Well, you go from a starter. You, you first couple of years you go a starter, then you transition to the bullpen. Was that a sigh of relief, or did you fight that transition? Um, the numbers that I put up as a starter in the big leagues, and when they come and tell you you're going to the uh, to we're going to try you in the bullpen, you don't fight that. All you do is breathe a sigh of relief. It's like okay. They didn't release me and they didn't send me to triple So I need to learn how to come out of the bullpen and pitch a couple innings at a time, you know, back to back days. And I remember vividly when I got called into the office, well, that spring training, um, I started a couple games in spring training. And then the other few games, I would come in right after the start and throw two, three innings. Didn't know what they were, you know, what they were, they were getting us into or what they were preparing me for. But I remember making a team out of spring training and TK coming to me and talking and had a meeting in his office and he was telling me they were going to move me to the bullpen because with my arm and my athletic ability, this should help progress my career. And I had that conversation with TK. He was like, we're going to move you to the bullpen. That's why we had, we've done a couple things like that in spring training. We'll let you start a game and then we'll let you come in right after the starter uh, because we're going to make you long relief come out of the bullpen. And hopefully with your arm and your athletic ability and, and you know, your ability to be able to throw back-to-back days, this could be something, the start of something real nice for you. And, Yes, was I up for the challenge? And I was like, do I have to learn how to pitch out of the bullpen in the big leagues or the triple A? And he was like, in the big leagues, son. And I was like, all right, I'm ready. Let's go. 
and so that, obviously that worked out uh, for the best because you look at you know your length of your career and you look at all the stuff that you kind of all the other te- all the teams you played at and you know the one thing with players that travel a lot well there's a lot of teams that want you is when you stop traveling and you, nobody wants you but there's a lot of you brought a lot of stuff to the table that teams wanted and so as you're kind of going through this and you're looking near the end of your career how do you decide to retire and what does that look like well what I, how did i decide to retire I was on MLB Network with Harold Reynolds, and he asked me, Hawk, how long are you going to keep doing this? And I was like, you know what? 2015 is going to be my final year playing professional baseball. Win, lose, or draw. Good, bad, or indifference, okay? That's how I came up with the decision. <laughs> Just like But I had been thinking about it a couple years. I had thought about it after the 2012 season. I was with the Angels. Uh, Tori and I played together that year, and – you know what? I, I started off okay, and then I broke my finger on Mother's Day. And we were headed to Minnesota that day after the game. And I broke my pinky finger, and I was out six weeks. Came back. They wanted me to have surgery, and I was like, nope, I don't need that finger to pitch. So I got the finger healed, and it just was never the same when I came back. I did all right. You know, I posted a three-something ERA. You know, it was okay. But I couldn't get a job that offseason. Whole offseason went by, didn't get a job. I think I signed with the uh, New York Mets, the first of February or late in, in January. And I remember my agent calling me and saying, hey, the Mets off your contract, minor league deal. And I was like, no, I'm not signing a minor league deal. No, no, no. He was like, well, he, he's guaranteeing you're going to make the team. You know, all you got to do is stay healthy. And I'm like, stay healthy? I was like, well, I've been hurt twice in my career. And you talking about stay healthy? It's like, no, don't take it like that. Like, stay healthy in camp and, you know, get through the, through the spring. I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. He's like, you know what? You're emotional right now. You know, think about it. I'll call you back in 24 hours. This is Larry Reynolds, my agent. 24 He's like, I guarantee you're going to make the team. I was like, I want to talk to Sandy Alves and myself. And he was like, oh, we can arrange that. So I call Sandy. You just need to stay healthy, you know, through spring, and I'll, and I'll, um, I'll, you'll make the team. You'll make the team. I was like, because I don't think I had that bad of a year last year. You say you didn't. But I just can't guarantee you a roster spot right now. I was like, okay, I can accept that since you're, you know, you're being very transparent of what's going on. Accept the deal. And I said from that point on, I will not give any team the opportunity to tell me I wasn't good enough ever again. I will walk away from this game on my own terms. My own terms. Came to that conversation with Harold Reynolds, and you know I'd been talking to my wife Anita, and you know and Troy, and she was getting ready to go to high school, and and so a lot of things was changing in my house, in my home life, and I'm saying, you know what, 2015 to be it, and I made it my last season, and I didn't care if I pitched good or bad, but I'm actually glad that I pitched good because I because now I know I could have continued. I feel strong in my heart that I gave the uniform back when I could have continued to do it. I didn't, they didn't take the uniform from me. I didn't have that conversation with a general manager sitting in his face and I didn't have to worry about shedding a tear. I did it. I, I, I did it the way that, that every athlete would like to do it, go out on their own terms. And I had a friend of mine, he said, you know what, you know, the best time to retire. And I was like, no, is there a good time to retire? 
He was like, yes, when they don't want you to. Because when they want you to, it's too late. And when he told me that, I felt like I did it at the right time. You guys are tired of throwing 96 miles an hour. <laughs> you, think, you still think you throw 96? No, if I got in shape, I probably could, but I have no desire to get in shape to throw a baseball. <laughs> uh, you retire, and now you, you know, you've played for such a long time, and you look at your new life after retirement. How do you look at that, and how do you keep yourself busy and, and have focus? And Because a lot of athletes really struggle with that transition. I started probably, I retired in 2015. I probably started in 2009 to align myself and get myself to think about post playing because I think as an athlete, you, most athletes assume that they're going to play forever. Assume they're going to make enough money forever. Assume that, at the end of the day, they've worked all these years and retirement is just what it is, retirement. Well, you forget most athletes retire at a young age. So you got the rest of your life, the rest of your life. And that's a long time if you live a while to do what? And I always thought about that. I mean, you go from doing something every day, being productive to not doing anything. Yeah, retirement sounds fine. Yeah, but you have to find yourself and finding yourself outside of the game is the tough part because I tell you the easiest part, the hardest part now, what I do now is harder than anything I've ever done because not only do I have to find myself, I have to, you know, look after my money, you know, the money that I made. I think that's hard now. You have to, you got everybody coming at you with different, you know, investment plans and you know, even myself now think, oh, I want to, I want to open up this. I want to start this. I want to invest in this. I want to do this. I want to do that. And to be able to have discipline to say, you know what? No, that's not a good, that's not something I need to be doing. You know, so protecting your money, saving your money. I think that's a harder job than any getting facing any big league hitter. But once again, I aligned myself early on, like, this is what I want to do after baseball. You know, I want to stay in the game in some, some capacity. You know, the times I, the, the long, the years I, the long years I was away from Minnesota, I still kept in t- contact with everybody from Minnesota, with Terry Ryan and Larry Corgan and Mike Radcliffe and the whole front office and all our scouts. I always kept in contact, but I did that with every team that I played for. And I played with 11 different teams and I just, you know, always was conscious of never burning a bridge and networking and you just you know, trying to be, you know, the best version of Latroy Hawkins. And when you, when you're the best version of you, people like you a lot more. They don't like when you try to be somebody you're not. And I always try to be genuine, straightforward, always try to be a leader in the clubhouse, um, help the guys. I don't care if you had one day in the big leagues, you had 20 years in the big leagues. I was always there to help. And I think a lot of that definitely is the reason why I end up playing so long and the reason why I had, I have the opportunity to continue to be in the game now. Because I, a lot of people want to be in the game and they got other things going on. But for me, it's one of the reasons why I'm still in the game now. After you you played so long and you have all these learning lessons because – you know, you have your, 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 how you grew up and now, you know, through the big leagues, playing 21 years in the, in the big leagues, 
How are you taking what you've learned all through this into your post-career life? What are the greatest learning lessons that you're applying now? You know, when I look at look at my playing career and I look at the look at the calendar, the years, and I say to myself, okay, this part of my career, you know, I was in this part of my life mentally. In this point of my career, I was at this point of my life mentally. And at this point of my career, I was at this point of my life mentally. And and if you're gonna progress and mature, all three of those phases. All three of those different times in your life should be completely different. You should have, you know, a good chance to become a better ball player, a better husband, a better father if you have kids, um, a better businessman, you know, a better, you know, you don't give yourself a chance to, you know, let your mind get idle. You're steady progressing to be the best version of who you are. And that's all I wanted. That's what I learned from the game, you know, how to work hard. And how to how to be able to, you know, reach everybody when I meet somebody, try to put myself in their shoes before I even judge them. Um, baseball has taught me how to deal with people. And that's how I, you know, now I, I, I think, you know, I think, you know, I thank God for the blessings of being able to be in a profession and meeting so many people. And now I'm meeting people outside of the game and. I don't think I would have done that because without, you know, being able to be put in those different situations as a player. And now I'm able to apply that in my, in my uh, post playing career, but baseball has taught me a lot of lessons, man. And hard work was one of them. Um, Respect for people. You know, you give respect, you demand respect. Um, It showed me that it showed me another side of people, even the bad side of people. And taught me over the years at different points in my life how to deal with them. I went from dealing with them negatively to not dealing with it at all. At all. And then the last half of my career, you know, making every situation a good situation. You know, even if it was a, it started off a bad situation, making that a good situation. So baseball gave me a lot of different tools to to um, to keep you know swimming in this this big game we call life. So you're on record talking about one of the te- one of your teammates uh, back in the day, and you know the the most difficult thing to teach kids, and especially you know kids nowadays. And I don't know if it's nowadays because I'm that old guy now, uh, coaching youth sports. Is the difference between what a good teammate looks like and what a bad teammate looks like? You have played with a lot of. You've had a lot of teammates. How do you define a good teammate, and how do you define? Um, a good teammate, a bad. Let's start with the bad teammates. Um, I only can speak from a baseball player perspective and baseball baseball world. A bad teammate, selfish, doesn't care about anybody but himself, his stats. Um, treats the people around him who can do who um, around him terrible. When I talk about that, I talk about the clubhouse guys, the guys who work in the kitchen, the security guards. Uh, the flight attendants, you know, people like that. And those are the bad guys, the bad guys, the guys who talk about other players behind their back. What makes you a good guy, you don't you don't make problems. You find solutions. And those guys are leaders. Those guys are the ones who take an extra time to help the young guy when he gets to the big leagues. 
Those are the guys that takes the time out of his day to see how the parking lot attendant's doing, how his family's doing, you know, how's his kid, how his kids are doing. Those are the guys who gravitate towards the clubhouse guys and the trainers and treat them all with respect and dignity. Dignity. Those are the guys who care about their teammates. You know, they ask you, how's your son doing? Or if your son's their best player, if your son's that, that guy's your son's best player, you know, taking time out, you know, to, to spend some time with that son or just how they treat people. Bad people, bad teammates treat people bad. Good teammates treat people with an abundance of respect. Hey, thanks for listening to the show today. If you like this show or any other of our shows, make sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you want to read stories written by our guests, you can do that on www.linkly.com. Don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you don't miss any of these stories. Make sure to check out our social pages. We have them all. Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have any suggestions for our show, please write us on Facebook. I'm Corey Kosky, and you've been listening to How I Got Here from Linkly. Special thanks to Wade Beavers and her friends at the restaurant Agriculture.